This is Caregiver's Compass, an uplifting podcast all about the ins and outs of caregiving for a loved one. Tips, tricks, true stories, and experts. It's all here on Caregiver's Compass. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Caregiver's Compass. My name is Stephanie Muscat. I am a registered social worker and psychotherapist. Please note that this episode is not the act of psychotherapy. Our group support program is coming back this September 2022. I cannot wait. This is a program for you if you've been looking to relate to other caregivers going through similar experiences while trying to focus on your self-care and your boundaries and staying more present. If you've been feeling extremely overwhelmed with the caregiving experience and you want to learn ways to tackle those emotions and deal with all of that stress, this is the group for you. I'm especially excited for this one because we have two amazing guest speakers coming on to talk about their experiences as a very overwhelmed caregiver and also to talk about different activities that you can engage in with your loved one. If you're interested, please book a call with me on my website, compassionandcaregiving.com. Enrollment is very limited so that we can keep it a tight-knit group and I cannot wait to speak to all of you and have this program started in September. Speak soon. Today, we have somebody that I've actually been engaging with for quite some time in the space. And also in my professional life, we engaged when I was at my position at the hospital. We had a little consult. I'm not sure if you remember about my client. That was quite a bit ago, but we've engaged in several ways. Her name is Nadine Persaud, and she's currently the executive director of the Kensington Hospice and the senior director of client services at Kensington Health. Nadine has been working in the hospice palliative care field for the past 16 years. She sits on the accreditation review panel for Hospice Palliative Care Ontario and is on the board of directors for the Hazel Burns Hospice. Nadine is a trainer for the Core Concepts Hospice Palliative Training for three of the hospices in Toronto and is a facilitator through PalCare for the hospices in York Region. Nadine received her Bachelor of Social Work with a minor in Psychology and a Master of Social Work and successfully defended her PhD in palliative care through Lancaster University in England. Her research interests include the importance of making palliative care equitable and accessible to individuals who are structurally vulnerable, maximizing supports that are available to healthcare providers working in the field, and the supports that are available to adolescents and young adults living with advanced cancer at the end of life. Welcome, Nadine. I'm really, really happy to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. That was a pretty big bio. You clearly have done a lot in the field. I know you recently defended your PhD. Congratulations. Thank you so much. So I thought it was really important to have somebody that works in palliative care and comfort care on the podcast because I think that A, there are a lot of misconceptions about it. There are a lot of judgments about it. And then people are really wondering about the ethical implications of it. So before we get into the whole discussion, I'm wondering if you could briefly, if possible, summarize what palliative care is. And is that comfort care? Does that overlap? What, what are the differences and similarities? 
Yeah. So palliative care, um, I think there's many misconceptions about what palliative care is and what hospice care is, but palliative care is a humanistic approach to care. It's a philosophy of care that really looks at the person. It looks at the physical, it looks at the emotional, it looks at the spiritual, it looks at the mental, and it really focuses on meeting the person where they're at and giving them the best care possible when they're living with any sort of life-limiting illness. Palliative care doesn't mean that you can't be on curative measures. It doesn't mean that death is near. Many people experience palliative care earlier on in the trajectory of illness. And that's actually when it's better. When it's better supported is when people are like early on in their illness and they're receiving some sort of palliative care support. So it really focuses on pain and symptom management. It focuses on suffering. It focuses on psychosocial support and meeting the person earlier on in illness. When we look at hospice care, hospice care is usually towards the end of an illness where there are no curative measures. And the main focus is just on pain and symptom management, psychosocial support, spiritual care, and really living as long as you can for as best as you can. So there is a huge differentiation, although the principles are very much similar. When hospice care is initiated, it's often different than when palliative care is initiated. And is comfort care used interchangeably with palliative care or is that something different? Most definitely. A lot of the time there's a lot of negative emotions around the words palliative, around the words hospice, around the words death, around the words dying. And for some reason, comfort care seems to be more palliable. People can say it a little bit better. They just feel more comfortable saying it's comfort care. So yeah, people use it interchangeably. A lot of organizations have actually changed their name from palliative care teams to other words that people can digest a lot easier. Oh, that's a really good summary. And I think very useful for lots of people who don't know what that is. So you were saying that palliative care doesn't have to be introduced as a way to not engage in any intervention methods. So how might that be blended? How might someone decide, okay, I'm going to be introducing palliative care, but I also want to have some interventions? What would that look like? I think it's unique because often, you know, as healthcare clinicians, we're trained to cure, we're trained to do better, and we're trained to make people live regardless of what it takes. So when you're trained that way to be able to say, well, I'm going to introduce a model of care that really focuses on not about curative options, it kind of is, it was a weird dance. But I think that when we look at the integration of palliative care with curative measures, it allows for holistic care. It allows you to hope for the best and expect the worst. So you can say, you know what, I'm going to hope that things work out with my chemotherapy, with my dialysis, with everything else, but I'm also going to plan that I can concurrently have both models of care, knowing that this may work. And if it works, that's great. And if it doesn't, at least I'm getting some support. It also focuses on aspects of care that's often missed if you're just focused on curative measures. So we don't focus on grief. We don't focus on anticipatory grief. We don't focus on loss. We just are so focused on cure that we forget so much of the suffering that is often not physical that comes along with it. And that's sort of a palliative approach to care kind of helps alleviate. And so let's say someone was on dialysis. What might it look like if they're getting dialysis, but they've also decided to have a palliative approach to care? Is it more of an advanced care planning decision or, or what does that look like? I think it's both. I think it, it does allow for goals of care conversations around wishes, values, and beliefs and what's really important to you. And it allows for, it can allow for legacy work. It could allow for more psychosocial support. It could allow for different pain and symptom management. 
People that support palliative care are often the experts in pain, and they're often the experts in symptom management. And when you get an expert in pain and symptom management, coupled with curative therapy, you'll really be able to support a bigger picture of care. If I look at the UK, for instance, their hospice day programs, some of the hospices actually have dialysis on site because they really do believe that you can be on dialysis, but you're still living with a life-limiting illness. You're still living with an illness that you will ultimately die from. It's just how do we improve quality of life? And I think that's what we really strive to do at Kensington with this model of care that we're hoping to expand is to be able to bring those models of care here where we kind of integrate the two to be able to say, A life-limiting illness doesn't mean you're going to live forever, but it means that you're going to live longer than someone who has a life-threatening illness. And what does that look like? That's fantastic. I've actually never heard of integrating both models. I've heard of it in a way of relieving symptoms, but I haven't heard of it in a way, for example, if I'm in the hospital and they might say, oh, this person has a palliative diagnosis, oftentimes the person that is diagnosing is saying, well, we're going to stop, you know, we're going to stop dialysis. We're going to stop interventions. It's good to know that you don't have to do that and you can still have that approach. Yeah. And I think that's the important part. There's many illnesses like COPD, CHF, ALS, PSP, dementia, where earlier on intervention of palliative care actually improves quality of life. And I think because often people are just so focused on curing and so focused on intervention, we often miss that piece. So there's a lot of illnesses that we miss because unfortunately, palliative care is so cancer focused because of the nature of what we look at, where it's initiated right at the end of life, where it's way too late and people aren't able to get the early benefits. But there's many illnesses that are not as clear trajectorized as cancer, like the ones I just listed, where earlier on intervention is going to help out and the trajectory to death looks very different as opposed to illnesses like cancer, which we can prognosticate a lot better than something like dementia or something like COPD. I don't know if this has changed, but you did speak about the accessibility of palliative care support. So I did want to touch on this because I have had homeless individuals, individuals in shelters, et cetera, who wanted palliative care supports, but did not have access to OHIP, for example. So that was a very big limiting factor. And and just to say this to people outside of Ontario, OHIP is our government funded program here, and you need access to an OHIP card or this program to be eligible for these government supports and government programs. So are there any ways that these individuals could seek palliative support from a shelter that may not have OHIP coverage or has anything progressed in this manner or is it an ongoing fight? Um, That's a good question. I definitely think it's an ongoing fight. I think there has been pathways that have been created to better support people who are sexually vulnerable and people who are experiencing homelessness. Like Dr. Nahid Dasani has made huge waves supporting um, people experiencing homelessness through his PEACH program. But I think that this is where our healthcare system has to better understand that we do not have universal health care in Ontario. And often I hear people say, oh, we're so lucky we have free health care. Well, we actually don't. Things like accessibility is a huge issue if you are marginalized or if you're structurally vulnerable. Things like dental care, eye care, these things are not covered. So I think that if you're experiencing homelessness and you don't have OHIP, you likely will not get care. Like if you need long-term care and you don't have OHIP, 
you will not get access to long-term care. At the hospice, we strive to ensure that we can eradicate these barriers where people get the support that they need, where they need it, regardless of their zip code, regardless of their status. So often what it takes is creativity for us to be able to think outside of the box and think how can we support people who are experiencing homelessness. And we do it at our hospice to the best of our ability. It's really easy to say like, we have to support people experiencing homelessness. We have to support people who are structurally vulnerable, but we don't have the infrastructure to do that because basic things like training and education on trauma-informed care, on harm reduction is not kind of like mandatory training for people. So if we want to start supporting individuals who are structurally vulnerable, we have to build the infrastructure for our healthcare providers to be able to do that. So I think that there are pathways that have been built, but these pathways still experience tons of barriers because as much as we like to think we're moving forward, every time we sometimes get 10 steps forward, we're getting 10 steps back. And I think that's the hard part. And I think we're left with trying to be creative on how to support individuals like this with the limited resources that we have, with the limited knowledge that we have, really through kind of like a social justice approach where we're often bombarded with legislation, with systemic racism, with ageism, with so much discrimination that we find it really hard and we do find it a battle to support people who are sexually vulnerable. And thank you very much for advocating on the behalf of of all those individuals. I think you may not remember this, but the client that we did work together on or, or did consult together on was a very unique example of something like this. And I'm going to share it in an anonymous fashion, but I think it's important to highlight just to show that because we do live in Ontario, it doesn't mean that everybody is getting access. This specific client was brought into the country by their family member and they didn't have resident status. They did not have an OHIP card. And unfortunately, while they were visiting, they became ill and very, very ill. And unfortunately, although they did want to go back to the home and live with their family member, we could not access palliative supports for them at home. They wanted to die with dignity. They wanted to be comfortable. They didn't want interventions. They weren't in a place to access that and they couldn't do that. So they had to stay in the hospital with us because they could not go home. They would be going home without any supports. And I think we consulted to see, was there a place for them at another facility where they could pass with dignity and be comfortable? But the way that things were structured, it didn't work that way. And they ended up staying in the hospital, not to say that the hospital is a bad place, but then you hear about all of the bed pressures and occupancy pressures. And why is someone like that in the hospital when they really want to be at home? And that's the way they want to die, just the way that they, you know, were brought here. They want to die in a certain way. That's such an important part of their life and and who they are. And so they did pass in the hospital, but it's just one of many examples of what needs to be changed. So I'm really glad that you are such a big advocate on that. Thank you so much. And like the sad part is like the story that you share, like it's become now that it's not even like it's so familiar because these stories are becoming more and more familiar that it's devastating to think that when you share a story like that, I'm not even saying, oh my gosh, that's horrible. I'm saying, yeah, that's what we're dealing with. I mean, we, we just have a case like that right now that we're supporting. And I think that we see this all the time and people 
have the right to die the way they want to die. And palliative care is a fundamental human right. And people don't see it that way. And if someone does not want to die in hospital and they want to die at home, regardless of what they call home, it's our job to ensure that that happens. And that often can't happen because of the way our system is built. So I think we're hearing more and more of these stories and it's unfortunate, but I'm hopeful that like with more awareness and if we bring more voices to this issue, it'll help because I think all we can do is advocate to the best of our ability. Yeah, I completely agree. And that situation for me, and I'm not as familiar with these situations as you, but it made me feel so uncomfortable. And I spent so long trying to figure out the system, trying to see if there was a way that we could bypass the system. And we couldn't, there was no way to do it. So I'm really, really glad you're doing that there. Now on that topic of what, you know, the, the perception of palliative care and comfort care might be, what would you say to somebody who had a family member that maybe was at the end of life and They really wanted to provide them with as many interventions as possible. Maybe it's part of their religious belief. And you or someone else came to them and said, you know what? I think that you should incorporate palliative care in this. And they said, no, I'm not doing that because that means they're going to die. How would you walk that someone in that experience through that so that they can understand that there is a difference in that and that someone can have both models. What are what are the methods you might use? So I think this is um, something that we experience quite often. At the hospice, not so much because by the time someone gets to the point where they are being admitted into our hospice, hopefully and likely these conversations have happened. Um, but in our long-term care home, we see this often. In our community program, we see this often. A lot of the concerns with palliative care are very fear-based. And they're fear-based because we come from a death-denying society. You know, we really don't talk about death and we don't talk about dying. And often it is rooted in a lot of our culture. And when you look at birth, we really celebrate life and we celebrate living. Like if you were to go into a hospital, I remember I did one of my practicums at a hospital and I went onto the birthing unit. And the room that is that is allocated for when a mother has a stillborn is located at the end of the hallway and it's all like IKEA furniture and it was beautiful. And then you go on to the palliative care unit and it looks like so different where we don't celebrate life the same way we celebrate death. So you can't expect family members to come into these conversations saying, absolutely, I want palliative care. I'm ready for hospice care because that's not the culture and the way we live. So it's about opening up reflective space about where these concerns are coming from and where these fears are coming from. When we approach these conversations focused on quality of life, people's shoulders tend to go down a lot because it's less about death and it's more about living. And I think that's what we really need to focus on. It's how do we help your loved one live as best as they can for as long as they can, regardless of what that looks like. And I think if you open up reflective space and we take the time to listen more and say less, we often are able to work through these complex conversations. And it's a bit of a dance. And sometimes it's you move forward and then sometimes you move back. And as the person illness kind of progresses, you sometimes have to go a few steps back to move a few steps forward. But it's always about meeting the person where they're at. And I often say, you know, it's not our job to give false hope. And it's also not our job to take away hope. It's our job to meet families where they're at and tell them what our best clinical advice is, regardless of if they're going to take it or not. Mm -hmm. And there are some people say that say, you know what, I don't care what you say. I want to die in a hospital and I don't want to talk about palliative care and I don't want to talk about hospice care. And when I reflect on where this comes from, you know, it's often caregivers that are saying this. And I once had a patient say to me, you know, Nadine, 
I have it easy. All I have to do is die. My family has to live, they have to grieve, and they have to mourn. So often when we think of grief, we think that, you know, the person dies and people move on and they get over grief and they continue life, which is completely untrue. The way someone dies remains in the memories of those that live on. So if people feel guilt, like I could have done more, or what if I had done this, or did like, did I make a decision that hastened death? People tend to feel a lot of guilt. So it's our job to have these conversations, sometimes many conversations, to continually open up reflective space to help people make the best decisions that they know that they can live with, but also that's best for them and best for the person being supported. So I think it's about listening. I think it's about addressing fears and concerns. And I think it's about knowing that sometimes people are going to make decisions that don't fit with what you think is the best for you or the best clinically, but it's the best for them. And you kind of just work through it one small step at a time. I love that you're having conversations because I think we do come from a top-down model where we are used to someone on the team or even just one person on the team in a hospital or another setting saying to someone, this is what you're going to have. This is your status and that's it. And you're focused on having engaged conversations, meeting someone where they're at, meeting a family where they're at and having that education and communication, which I think has been lacking for so long in many different healthcare systems. I mean, I do speak from the North American perspective. Obviously there are other places that see things differently. So I'm going to speak about ours, but I think that is so important that we start to have dialogue, communication, conversation. We're not just saying to people, this is it, that's it, and this is what you're going to go with because I am the lead here and I'm the one telling you what's going on because that's not what it is about. And I'm so glad that things are starting to shift, even in small ways, through education, awareness, and, you know, your place there, this seems to be the culture, right? So I think that's a huge step in the right direction. I think also with a lot of my clients who are caregivers, even if they themselves want to give their loved one, you know, comfort care or palliative care, they're facing a lot of battles with their family members. They're facing a lot of criticism. How could you let them die? How could you let this happen? You're not going to try and get them to live. It's a lot of shame giving. It's a lot of guilt giving. And, you know, that's a broader issue. And I'm glad that we're raising awareness as to what these things are today. So maybe somebody can go to their loved one and say, you know what, take a listen to this, because this is actually what palliative care is. This is what we're giving to our loved ones. It doesn't mean that we're killing them. It doesn't mean that we're ending their lives. We're just giving them quality of life. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. I think Um, We hear that often, like, and even within staff, like within the use of opioids, there's a lot of hesitance. There's a need to have to continue with nutrition at the end of life. And we know that that's not the best for someone at the end of life. We know there's the ability to get someone out of bed and get them up and walking because we think that if they do that, things will get better. And there's a lot of fear with families around decision-making. And that's why an early integration of palliative care is so important from the moment of diagnosis, because we can start these advanced care planning conversations. We can start these goals of care conversations as opposed to when a crisis hits and everybody's emotions are high and we're making decisions based on emotions as opposed to based on facts and based on clinical expertise. And it's it's hard for families to make these decisions because they often are not aware of like, you know, what's going on and what they have to face. And it's it's uncertainty is the most hardest place to sit. But I think that when we're able to 
approach palliative care as a way in which it's about quality of life. Like I can't think of anybody that would say, I don't want the best care for me because I'm scared of it. Like if people understood better what palliative care was and what hospice care was, they would accept it more because nobody wants to die in pain. Nobody wants to die where it's not their place of choice. Nobody wants to die suffering. But I think when we open up reflective space for more narratives around education, people are able to understand it better. And people think like, oh, you know, well, I'm just giving up. There's no hope anymore. And hope is something that threads all the way through beyond death. And I think that when we think of hope as something that is flexible and something that continues to change, we're able to accept care in different ways. Because often the paradox of palliative care is sometimes by doing less, we're able to do more. And by less, it doesn't mean like I'm giving up. Less means like interventions, like chemotherapy and all these things that sometimes are not beneficial to the person. So we're able to do more in other ways, which is so important. I also like that you're not an enforcement stance. You're not taking a stance and saying, this is what we're doing to you. You're engaging in that conversation. And I think this entire conversation between you and I has been very obviously pro-palliative, but I also want to note that if somebody isn't pro-palliative, if somebody isn't in that direction, that's okay. That's, you know, as long as they have the information and they're having those conversations, that's their decision. It's their choice. But again, having those conversations and allowing for the openness of that, knowing that there are many different cultures in our society, many different people in our society, people come from different places. That's a whole other conversation in terms of what they think, you know, should happen at the end of life, which should be respected. We've had For example, a lot of veterans in our hospital and the way that they pass, you know, we do a flag ceremony and there's other things going on before they pass as well. And so it's all about dignity and respect. And I think that's that's the highlight of this. If somebody wants to find out more about palliative care, comfort care, raising awareness about this, where's the first place to start? I think your care team at the hospital And sometimes that's not the best place to start because if people don't believe in that curative measure, it actually could be a deterrent. But, you know, we often like social media has become such an amazing tool for so many things that people often don't like to speak about. Um, And there's so many great people that are doing such great work through through social media. Even like looking at organizations like um, Hospice Palliative Care Ontario, like Canadian Hospice Palliative Care Association, a quick Google search will pull up hospices within your area and um, provide you with resources. So I think social media, the internet is a really good way to start looking at these areas and where you can get more resources and more information. And you have a pretty good Instagram account. That's how I found you. Where can people find you if they want to find out more, maybe have a conversation? throw it all out there. Yeah. Like you can find me on Instagram. Um, my handle is underscore Nadine Prasad underscore. I'm also on Twitter. If you Google me, you could find my email address. I mean, cause we're always open to having these conversations. We get a lot of phone calls on just exploratory. Like what does this mean and how can I get support? And I think those conversations are so important. So yeah, reach out to me in any of those ways. And I'd love to help however I can. You're doing such good work. I'm so inspired by this conversation. Thank you so much, Nadine, for being here. Thank you so much. And I was also so inspired by your Instagram. I think you do such great work. I think that your personal experience coupled with your clinical experience provides such a holistic approach to what we know we need. And I really, really appreciate this opportunity to meet with you. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks for listening to Caregiver's Compass. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. I'm Stephanie Muscat. Have an uplifting day and I'll see you next time.